Okay, good evening everyone. I think we'll get started. Good evening. <clears throat> okay, thank you all for coming out here tonight. Nice to see uh, so many faces. Uh, tomorrow night uh, is the 4th of ER, which is the uh, which is the the day that's observed as Yom Hazikaron, the day before Yom Atzmaut, which is a joyous day. Yom Hazikaron, um, actually, the full name for Yom Hazikaron is a Yom Hazikaron the Chalalei Marachot Yisrael, and which means those who have uh, fallen during Israel's wars, but also those who are Nifgaei Puulot Eva, which means uh, victims of terror. So it's for soldiers and for victims of terror. And so this year is the third year that we've had a uh, that we've had a Yom Hazikaron lecture. Um, but this is the first year that the Yom Hazikaron lecture is not about somebody who actually um, fell in any of Israel's wars or was a victim of terror. And I think, and you'll see soon why I thought it was appropriate um, tonight to talk about somebody who was not a victim of terror or uh, or fell in battle. I'll talk a little bit about that um, very soon. Now, now Jews are not new to the business of serving in armies or being in war. Right? Throughout, our, throughout our history, wherever governments would allow us to, uh, whether it was in Europe, my own great-grandfather was a lieutenant in the German army. I'm sure, I'm sure many of you uh, had your own family members who served in various wars and uh, various, uh, various armies, the, certainly the United States Army and all kinds of different, uh, different wars. Um, and throughout history, wherever they allowed us to, sometimes they forced us to, Jews have served. Uh, the Chafetz Chaim famously wrote an entire uh, booklet, a pamphlet, a safer on um, how Jews who were serving in uh, various armies in Europe and Poland and in Russia should act. The various questions that have come up, they had to address whether it was uh, in terms of keeping kosher or keeping Shabbos um, in these kinds of environments. So that's not new. That's not new at all. And it goes way, it goes way, way back. In fact, uh, there was a Rishon named Shmuel Hanagid who, was, uh, who, was, who eventually rose to become the prime minister of, of a Muslim country called Granada, which was in southern Spain. Um, and in addition to his uh, political role, he also was responsible to lead the uh, army out into battle, which he did many times. And so we've had, we've had, we've had this experience going, back, uh, going way back. I, the Cochin Jews uh, from India were famous warriors, and they also uh, were famous for fighting in battle. But the crucial difference between what we're dealing with now in Israel and all of those hundreds and hundreds of years of experience is that in all of those cases, you had Jews fighting in the service of a non-Jewish army. And now we have a situation in Israel, thank God, where you have Jews who are fighting in the service of a Jewish army to defend the Jewish homeland. And that brings with it um, an entirely new dimension to this, uh, to this particular role. Now, who knows, um, obviously, I'm talking um, in, uh, in ancient times, but who knows, let's say, the State of Israel was founded in 1948, and there were various groups that were fighting in defense of Jewish lives before that, the Irgun, the Haganah, Lehi. Who knows when the last time before that uh, was there an organized army of any kind, a Jewish army, fighting to protect the Jewish homeland? Any? So the Maccabees were way back, right? The Maccabees were, um, were, were earlier, like much earlier in the Second Temple era. Okay, good, but that's during the Second Temple era, and Bar Kokhba, very good, right? So the Bar Kokhba revolt was the last organized, was the last organized uh, revolt which which had a real <laughs> army that was post Second Temple era. We'll just wa- run quickly uh, through the history here. Uh, in the year 66, uh, there was a group of Jews that uh, that rose up and they revolted against the Romans, and for several years they gave the Romans a very very hard time. And uh, from the year 66 until the year 70, finally the Romans put down that revolt. And they went city by city, attacking uh, the Jewish garrisons who tried to fight back. They eventually consolidated in Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem, and the Romans come. They lay siege. It takes them a very long time, but eventually they um, defeat the Jewish army, and they destroy the temple. They destroy the second base of Mikdash. And that's obviously a very sad day, the 9th of Av, which we mark every year on Tisha B'Av. But even though the Jews were beaten down, and even though, according to Josephus, over one million Jews in Jerusalem alone were killed, okay? according to Josephus, they were there from the, uh, they all went up to Yerushalayim for Pesach that year. They were Ola Regal, and then they got stuck. That's how he describes it. Whether it's an exaggeration of some kind, it was still hundreds of thousands of Jews who were, who were killed in, uh, during that time period. Um, and then, after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, they scattered Jews all over the place and expelled them to other parts of the, uh, of the ancient world. That was not the last time that Jews rose up against the Romans. That was the year 70. 
Only 45 years later, there was another revolt against the Romans, which we know was massive, but we know very, very little about. And that's not the Bar Kokhba revolt, even earlier. Remember, the Beis Mikdash is destroyed. Jews are scattered all over the world. There was a second revolt, which we don't know too much about, called the, uh, the, the Kitos Wars. And all we know about those wars is that the Roman army was off on some campaign, and somehow all, many, many of the Jews throughout the Roman Empire in uh, North Africa, in Cyprus, and in other parts of the Middle East, together rose up against the Romans and slaughtered hundreds of thousands of uh, Roman soldiers. There are reports, contemporary reports, of entire regions uh, being completely wiped out by these Jewish uh, revolutionaries because they were trying to head back to Judea to retake Jerusalem and set up the temple. Um, all we know is that the Roman army came back and very, very brutally put down this revolt. Um, there, uh, specifically in Cyprus, the Jews um, basically took over the island. They, the Romans came and, and wiped them all out. There were laws about Jews going to different parts of the ancient world. Um, so one would think that that was the end of it. But, of course, famously in the year 132, which was not too many years later, there was uh, the third and final attempt to uh, really revolt against the Romans, and that was the Bar Kokhba revolt, as you pointed out. So, the short story is, that in the year 132, uh, Shimon uh, Bar Kokhba uh, famously rose up against the, uh, the Romans. He organized an army. He minted his own coins, uh, which there are many of today. You can buy them online, for Bar Kokhba revolt coins, and uh, they're found in caves. They had a lot of very elaborate... A cave system uh, so that they were able to attack the Romans and escape. Their headquarters was in the city of Betar, just south of Jerusalem, and they uh, were able to really give the Romans a very, very hard time. If I'm not mistaken, I believe at one point an entire uh, one quarter of, of the entire Roman army, which was massive at the time, and I believe Rome's reach extended you know, almost you know, till, until England um, and throughout Europe, a quarter of the entire Roman army had to be called in to eventually put down this revolt, which was a very substantial revolt. And what we know about the Bar Kokhba revolt is that it was strongly supported by one of the most famous Tanayim of all time, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was convinced that Bar Kokhba was Mashiach. And he believed that he complied with all the uh, descriptions of what Mashiach should be, of who Mashiach should be, um, until um, things uh, went sour and went south. And Bar Kokhba did certain things. And Rabbi Akiva eventually realized that um, Bar Kokhba was not Mashiach, or maybe he could have been, but then he wasn't. And that um, was obviously a very, very difficult time for the Jewish people. They put all their eggs in that basket, most of them did, and the Romans defeated the Jews and wiped out hundreds of thousands of Jews, um, especially in the capital city of Betar. And uh, the Gemara tells us that the, that the Jews who were killed in Betar, in addition to the fact that they were killed, the Romans issued a decree that they were forbidden, other Jews were forbidden to bury them. And so eventually they were received permission to, to bury them, and the miracle had occurred, and none of the corpses had rotted, the Gemara tells us, and the rabbis, when they saw that, they, they decreed um, a special blessing of Hatov Hametev, which is included in, uh, in the benching of today. So Bar Kokhba's army, so what do we know about it? So first of all, in terms of the involvement of the various rabbis of the time, there are opinions that say the famous passage in the Haggadah that we read about the five rabbis that are sitting and talking about the story of leaving Egypt all night on, uh, on the Pesach night, and their students have to come and knock on the door and say, say it's morning, so why, why couldn't they realize that on their own? There are opinions that say that they were keeping watch because they weren't allowed to be doing what they were doing, and Rabbi Akiva was one of them, and he was one of the... He was one of the uh, he was the spiritual force behind this, uh, behind this great revolt. Um, but the truth is that, uh, the truth is that there, are, there are other interesting sources that relate to that time period. And this is something which is pretty compelling um, and relates directly to what we're um, dealing with right now. So right now we're in a period called the Omer the mourning period of the Omer. So why do we mourn during the times of the Omer? So the Gemara in Yavamos tells us that, that during this time period between Pesach and between Shavuos, there were 12,000 pairs of students of Rabbi Akiva who died during this time period. And so we're mourning the loss of these uh, 12,000 pairs of students. Now the Gemara says that they died through some kind of plague. But uh, there are other sources which indicate that it's not necessarily, uh, wasn't necessarily a plague. Uh, Rav uh, Igaris, Rav Shuragon, uh, uses another term, which is shmad, which means religious persecutions. 
Um, and there are great rabbis, including most recently Rav Henkin, who was a uh, early, early 20th century rabbi in the Lower East Side in New York, who is convinced that these 12,000 students of Rabbi Kiva actually were killed in action fighting in Bar Kokhba's army. They were fighting in his army, and that's why they were killed. And for various reasons, whatever reason, the Gemara decided not to tell the true story. Whether that's true or not, it's uh, hard to know. But what is clear is that Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Akiva students were certainly very, very active um, in this in this uh, in this army. So that was the last organized Jewish army. Now, what, it, what what one thing that we know, which is very interesting, about about that army, and we have, I believe, only one actual um, written, handwritten um, piece of. Um, writing from Bar Kokhba himself, to the best of my knowledge. Um, the year ni- in 1960, in a cave near the Dead Sea, there was actually writing found. Um, and it is a letter from Bar Kokhba um, to somebody, essentially requesting Dalad Minim, requ- requesting Lulavim Esrogim Hadassim Aravos for his army. During this time period, between 132 and 135, his army needed, they needed, uh, they needed the Dalad Minim for Sukkot. And so there's actually a letter which was found um, where he requests that. So that's an early example of, of somebody servicing the religious needs of a Jewish army, um, and that was the last time we had a Jewish army, really, until, um, until just before the founding of the State of Israel. So let's talk a little bit about modern Israel, the modern um, the institution of the IDF rabbinate, and specifically who we're talking about uh, tonight, um, Rabbi Avichai Ronsky and his role in, uh, in, in dealing with the rabbinate. So even before the founding of the State of Israel, there was a rabbinate um, unit within the, uh, pre, pre, in the precursor to the IDF. The Haganah, which was the largest uh, fighting force, had actually a division which was responsible to serve the religious needs of the soldiers that were serving, or serving in the army. And uh, after the founding of the State of Israel, so the uh, first IDF uh, uh, rabbi was appointed, and that was Rabbi Shlomo Gorin. Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, an extremely colorful personality, or Herschel Schechter, who was here this past Shabbos, uh, quoted some, uh, some uh, items from him. He also said he was colorful. Um, and Rabbi Gorin was very colorful. He served as the IDF chief rabbi for the first 20 years that the IDF was in existence. From 1948 until 1968, Rabbi Shlomo Gorin was in charge of the IDF rabbinate. And he basically created from nothing this uh, new institution of the Rabbinu. And so Rav Gorin himself, obviously the, the pinnacle of his career and the reason he's most famous to most of us is that towards the end of his career is when the miraculous Six-Day War occurred. And there's the iconic photo of him at the Kotel blowing the chauffeur, and uh, there's the, uh, his, uh, the blessings that he made at the Kotel, etc. Uh, there's also a story which uh, some, some debate whether it's true or not, they certainly tell it in Hebron, and the story goes that that as the, uh, the IDF was moving south of Jerusalem and taking over what is today uh, Yehuda and Shemron, Judea and Samaria, and which was then Jordan, that there were, he was attached to, an entire, to a particular unit which was going to head south. He wanted to be with them when they went to the city of Hebron, the city of our, of our forefathers, to, uh, to be there. And the story goes that at a certain point he fell asleep from fatigue and the unit moved on without him. And he woke up and there was nobody there. And he figured that they had gone south to Hebron. And uh, the story goes that he, him, it was him and his driver. Him and his driver got into a jeep, and they started driving south to Hebron. They're looking. They're, they're expecting that the army, uh, that the unit that they were with was uh, ahead of them. And they're driving and driving, and there's no, there's no army ahead of them. It turns out the army had gone to the other side of the mountain, and he was headed south alone, the IDF chief rabbi, with his driver going into Jordanian um, army-controlled uh, territory, and the story goes that he goes into the city of, uh, he himself, with himself and his driver, drive into the city of Hebron, which was the most populous uh, um, city um, in the region, and um, there are white flags hanging from every window, and the city of Hebron surrenders to Rabbi Shlomo Gorin and his driver. That's, that's, what they t- that's a story that they tell, right? What? That's, that's what they say. Yeah, that's, that's what they say. I was looking, some, some historians uh, doubt it, but I know, I'll tell you for sure that on, on the tour of Hebron, that's a story they tell. They also say, they also say that, when he, that when he got to the Maris to the um, to the burial site of our, uh, of Avram Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Sarah uh, Rivka, and Leah, and, uh, and others, Adam and Chava, that the doors were locked and he shot the locks off the door and you could still see the bullet holes, that's what they say, on the, um, which is uh, by the Ulam Yitzchak where the Arabs come in, uh, the area that they, that they have control over. And, um, and they also say 
that he brought into the Maris HaMachpela compound, he brought a, uh, he brought a uh, Sefer Torah, and he put an Israeli flag on the roof. And then when the army eventually shows up, right, expecting a fight and realizing that their chief rabbi uh, single-handedly uh, conquered Hebron, uh, the army eventually shows up, they, uh, they order the uh, flag to be taken down, they, didn't want to t- they were very sensitive to the status quo, they didn't want to uh, inflame uh, local tensions, and so supposedly Rav Goren famously told them that the flag you could take down, I'm not taking it down, but the Torah is only leaving over my dead body. That was his... Uh, his, his line to them, and they, they let the Torah stay there, and eventually they worked out an arrangement that the Jews controlled some part of it, and that was the beginning, obviously, of what has become the modern uh, community, community of Hebron. So that was Rav Gorin, a uh, very, uh, very interesting and very colorful uh, personality. And so each, each IDF unit and each base has a rabbi. And so who can think, just a show of hands, you can raise your hand, what kinds of services are these rabbis rendering? What do, what do you think an IDF rabbi does on a day to day? Any uh, any ideas? I'm sorry, counseling. Okay, I mean, they're, they're, I'm sure they have the uh, social workers or the psychiatrists and whatever else dealing with that kind of thing. They certainly are providing a religious, um, um, a, uh, like a clergy type of, of pastoral care that maybe a, a regular person can provide. That's true. Yes. Learning, you can offer learning for anybody else. Oh, yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. Very good, very good. So you're you're referring to um, to actually appears in the Torah, which is the uh, the only place in the Torah that we find a role, a, a religious role for um, for somebody in leadership position in battle, right? It's Sefer Devarim, it tells us that there was a Kohen Mashuach Machama, a special Kohen whose job it was was to uh, lead the people into battle, and he would read special verses to the uh, assembled, telling them not to be scared. First he says, if anybody is exempt from going into battle, this is who you are and you should leave now. And then those who stay, he gives them a pep talk and tells them to uh, stay strong. That's true. Do they do that today? Now they kind of do, and that's really what we're going to talk about. Um, yes, that's a very good point. But historically, that's not a traditional role, certainly not in the IDF uh, rabbinate, or it wasn't. So, yeah. Also, in war, they used to give the, the men give gets to their wives so that if something did happen to them, very good. they lead services, very good. they get the military seat seat for those who want it, make right. sure that um, you know, they have the tefillin and all of that. Exactly. So th- those are the st- yeah. What about like our Allah Exactly. Right. All these things. Exactly. Right. So every base and every unit has an IDF rabbi, and the I- the IDF is a Jewish army. The state of Israel is a Jewish state, and halachas designed, the way it's designed is halakha to inform everything. And so on every base, in order for a, the way they say it, in order for an, an IDF vehicle to move on Shabbos, the army, the base rabbi has to sign off on it. You have issues of kosher, right? So every IDF base has to be kosher. On Pesach, every IDF base has to be kosher for Pesach. So a major function of the IDF rabbinate is just kosherus alone, keeping every single base of um, in every single office affiliated with the idea of kosher is a huge logistical undertaking, huge. So you have that. You have everything related to Shabbos. Uh, you have you have um, in every base there, you know, and and along and depending on how sophisticated it is, but every base you have some some version of a shul, and you have sifrei Torah that have to be checked, right? Just like our shul has sifrei Torah that have to be periodically checked. Imagine that on a massive scale. You need to have sofrim who are in the IDF rabbinate, whose jobs it is, is literally to go base to base, checking the zuzas, checking tefillin, which they have extras of, and checking Torah scrolls. That alone is a thing. I have a cousin who that was his army service. His service in the IDF was in that division where he checked the, uh, he, where he checked the scrolls. Um, you also have um, you also have conversions. That's another thing, especially more recently, that the ID, within the IDF there's an entire division the, within the rabbinate where they take responsibility for creating a process for those who are not Jewish but serving the IDF, most of whom uh, are, are probably from the former Soviet Union um, and are not halakhically Jewish and want to convert to create a process for them that works to convert to Judaism. That's a whole other thing. The IDF has its own choir. Um, which uh, appears at religious functions, sometimes at Yom Hazikaron events, and um, 
And another um, important area which you, you touched on has to do with dealing with soldiers who have tragically been killed or passed away. You have several aspects of that. You have the Hevra Kadisha aspect, just like any other Hevra Kadisha um, in civilian life. You have to handle the body a certain way and has to be treated a certain way. The laws can be slightly different depending on how they were killed. Um, but, but, so you have everything, everything related to that. In fact, when I was studying in Israel, one of the yeshivas that I studied in, which was affiliated with Eshetara, one of the rabbis that taught there, then was Yishai Kramer, he had served in a very unique unit during the Second Lebanon War, and he wrote a whole book about it, a fascinating book, which is in Hebrew. And he, he had previously served as an officer in the paratroopers, he was a paratrooper, and he subsequently become a rabbi. And when uh, and he was and he was uh, he did reserve duty, but he mostly taught. He was an educator. But during the Second Lebanon War, the IDF rabbinate realized that they needed rabbis who were essentially Hevra Kadisha members who were able to operate under very hostile circumstances, who were able to be possibly under fire, certainly in areas that were uh, maybe at risk of being under fire and to handle themselves like warriors while also knowing the, all the halachic uh, uh, nuances of dealing with these bodies. And so he was recruited to be part of what's essentially a, uh, a, a, an, uh, a commando unit of the uh, IDF rabbinate, whose job it was to be armed and ready and trained, which they were, but also to be dealing with these, with these bodies. So that's a major thing. And then, as you pointed out, there are all kinds of very complicated halachic issues, or the most complicated halachic issues out there have to do with agunos, you have soldiers who are tragically killed under circumstances where it's impossible to definitely, definitively uh, say that they're dead and they're married, right? This, uh, this happens. The Second Lebanon War actually opened up with two soldiers who were kidnapped and nobody knew what happened to them. One of them was married, right? One of them wasn't. One of them was married. And Hezbollah claimed that they were alive and in captivity and uh, nobody knew whether they were telling the truth or not and they were able to negotiate for thousands of terrorists to be freed because they refused to divulge whether they were alive or dead. It turns out they were dead. They were not alive, but nobody knew. So, um, so under those circumstances, you have to, the, the IDF rabbinate, especially the chief rabbi, has to be able to, to put things into place, as you pointed out, in advance, so that if this ever happens, there are, it makes it easier halachically to determine uh, whether the, 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 the spouse can remarry. Right? There's uh, the famous um, uh, submarine incident, the Dakar, which just uh, disappeared, no trace, for many years. Or eventually they found it. But there were uh, dozens and dozens of married men on that submarine, and no trace of them has ever been found. And so somebody's got to be able to say definitively, these people are, are gone and they're never coming back, and go through all of that. And so that's an entire, another area that the IDF uh, rabbinate, rabbinate deals with. But... The IDF rabbinate historically has been viewed, uh, typically when it, when it comes to the IDF, and I, never, I didn't serve in the IDF, but I did a study in a Hezri Yeshiva for two years where everyone else did, so I can tell you this. There, there are two types of people that serve in the IDF. There's what's called uh, Kravi, which means that you're a combat soldier. Then there's everyone else, which, be, which are, they refer to as a Jobnik. Right? A Jobnik means you're not a combat soldier, but you are doing the support. You're playing a support role to help the combat soldiers do their job. And it's typically the combat soldiers look down a little bit at the non-combat soldiers, and uh, it's just the way it is. And so the IDF rabbinate was not viewed as a combat role. Typically, you have the paratroopers are up at 5 in the morning, and they're running uh, and doing, uh, you know, they were, they were woken up in the middle of the night to do a several-mile run, and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, lo- the base rabbi wakes up when he's ready to wake up, and he makes a coffee, and he whistles his way to shoal uh, to get ready for davening. And so it was not viewed as something that was um, uh, really a frontline role. That's historically how it was. Um, of course, as you pointed out, in the times of the Torah, the, uh, the Kohen, Mashuach Mohama, the Kohen whose job it was to lead them into battle, in addition to uh, presumably these other roles, he also had a, there was a morale role, right? He had to, their job was to really give the people a good reason for why they're going out into battle. And the Kohen Mashiach Muhammad would say things like, don't be scared when you hear the, the violent sounds of people screaming out because you're defending all the civilians back home and you're doing it for a holy cause and you're doing the right thing and to, uh, to rally them together. So that was also a historic role. And the IDF rabbinate always had that as one of their roles, but it never really took off historically in that, in that particular um, that particular role, and we're going to talk about a time when it changed. So let's just fast forward a little bit. Um, again, Rav Goren, 1948. From the times of Rav Goren until the year 2005, there were four chief rabbis in total. 
four chief rabbis. In the year 2005, there was a chief rabbi named Rabbi Yisrael Weiss. Rabbi Yisrael Weiss did a great job um, as IDF chief rabbi, by all accounts. He organized the IDF rabbinate um, very efficiently. He introduced new, uh, new things. He, uh, he created an entire new division to teach people to, to, to bring these uh, values and morale into the army. But he had the unfortunate uh, luck of being the IDF chief rabbi during probably the most traumatic time in recent uh, history in Israel, and that was the disengagement from Gaza. So here you have the IDF chief rabbi, who is a kippah-wearing religious man, um, who is tasked with dealing with all the halachic aspects of how to expel, right, how to expel Jews from their homeland, thousands of Jews from their homeland. And at the time, there were many rabbis calling for soldiers to refuse orders. They were saying, you were sent to the army to defend Jews. How can you go in uniform and expel Jews from their home? And many soldiers actually either outright refused orders or they at least requested not to be sent into this mission and the army complied to some extent. And there were high profile cases of soldiers um, who, who were very um, open about, about refusing orders. And it was a very, very tense time. Civil disobedience, roads were blocked by groups of people. Uh, there was all kinds of, uh, all kinds of exciting uh, things, mass marches, etc. So Rabbi Weiss was under a lot of pressure to do something as the IDF chief rabbi You've got to do something to stop this. And if they, a lot of people said to him, if you would say, I'm resigning as chief rabbi, that would be a statement. And just uh, to bring this point home, just to see how emotional this can get, one of the tasks of the IDF rabbinate was to deal with what, what was probably the most painful part of the disengagement from Gaza, which was even more painful, by the way, than destroying the yeshivas, which there were many of them in the Veda Kalim. There were, in the Veda Kalim alone, there were a couple of yeshivas, and in Kfar Darum there was yeshiva, and in Nitzarim there was yeshivas. Um, and shoals, many shoals um, who were, that were built in addition to everything related to handling the Torah scrolls and everything else. There was actually a cemetery in Gush Katif with people buried there. I think 20-some people were buried there, including Jews who had been killed in terror attacks in Gush Katif after having chosen to live there to defend that area. And so you have family members who are faced with the prospect of having their relatives' bodies dug up reburied in Israel, and there are halakhically there is some version of Shiva that they sit again, even though it's many, many years later sometimes since they passed away. And so the IDF rabbinate had to plan for that, and they did plan for it. And it happens to be that uh, it seems that logistically they did a great job. But Rabbi Weiss, um, from the, after the disengagement from Gaza in 2005, he had no very little credibility among, certainly amongst religious soldiers, and in general, um, the religious community in Israel, even the religious Zionist community in Israel, especially the religious Zionist community in Israel, especially the settler community in Israel, um, had a very, very, very difficult relationship with the IDF. A lot of people chose not to enlist at the time, fewer than they expected, but there were definitely, uh, uh, there were definitely um, religious uh, young men who otherwise would have enlisted in the IDF who said, we're not joining the IDF. There was a major crisis of confidence uh, with the IDF. Yeah. Well, you could find all kinds of ways to get out of it. Right, exactly. They could say crazy things, which many of them did, or a lot, you know, there was a, there was a so the religious Zionist community in Israel, just to touch on it, um, is by and large, um, in Hebrew terms, it's called Mamlachti, which means that their very, very, uh, very central value of their belief system is that the state of Israel and all, of, all aspects of the state of Israel are inherently holy, especially the army. Right, and so there was a bit of a crisis where you had religious Zionist communities who, which stopped saying prayers for the uh, prayers for the state of Israel uh, for a time, for both, yeah, for a time. Um, I remember, I remember. This is to me is uh, one of the most shocking things I've ever seen. Um, I wa- I went with a group to to one of the areas where where some of the residents of Gush Katif were displaced. Uh, Atzmona was one of the communities. So the residents of Atzmona were moved to some industrial zone near like Kiryat Gad or something in southern Israel. So I remember I was there with a group, and this group that I was with brought them a lot of food and other things, and we spoke to them and cheered them up. There was a, um, this is extremely harsh, there was a, they, they set up schools, right? They, they, they had to continue life as normal, and so they had, they had the teachers, and they had the rabbis, and they had students. And so at the time, the former Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu, was very sick. He was very ill at the time. And so I remember I walked into a classroom, and on the whiteboard, um, and, and at the same time, I'm sorry, Ariel Sharon, who ha- was the 
more than the engineer and the architect of the disengagement from Gaza. I mean, he was the bulldozer who made it happen. I mean, he had to change, he had to change the entire political landscape to pull it off because there was so much opposition within his own party, the Likud party. They were both sick at the time. And on the whiteboard, it said, please pray for Rabbi Mordechai Leo, um, and said his name, um, um, and then Betoch Shar Israel, the traditional text amongst all those who are sick of Israel. And then part of the text was, with the exception of Ariel Sharon, in the text, okay? So there were a lot of very, very angry people who were very angry at the government, justifiably so, right? Some of them did some crazy things over time. During the disengagement from Gaza, it wasn't as violent as they expected, right? They were expecting what had happened in Yamit in the early 1980s when there were groups of uh, people mostly affiliated with Kach and JDL which hold, who hold up in these concrete bunkers and threaten to blow themselves up. They were expecting all those things. With very few exceptions, it almost pretty much did not happen. Um, there were a few places where there was actual real, real, um, um, some extent, some violence in Kfar Darom, and then in the Shomron, there was some violence, but by and large, it didn't happen that way. So, so there was a major crisis. So Rabbi Weiss was, was a lame duck. He was the chief rabbi of the IDF, but he couldn't even service the needs of the religious soldiers. And it was just a very, very bad time. And so into this picture walks the subject of our talk tonight, uh, and that is Rabbi Avichai Ronsky, okay? Um, Rabbi Ronsky walks in and single-handedly uh, changes um, the attitude of the religious community towards the IDF, and he changes um, the, uh, just the way the IDF rabbinate functioned. And he is a man who came into his position with a lot of credibility, and I'll explain to you why in a moment, just so you can get a glimpse of who Rabbi Ronsky was, the only thing I have on this computer uh, to show you is a picture of Rabbi Ronsky, just so you can get a sense. Um, let's see. Sometimes it takes a second. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's him. That's Rabbi Avi Ronsky. Okay. This is later on. This is during, I think, the, the war in, uh, in Gaza, Operation Castlet. Okay, so Rabbi Avi Chayronsky, who was he? How did he show up in this vacuum and, and do something major, right? And there are people, um, just when I was looking up a couple articles about this, I, I found some non-Jewish like web forums with this picture appeared and people just commenting at how striking it is <laughs> to see this. Um, and so, so who was he? Where did he come from and what did he do? So let's, uh, let me give you a little bit of a little bit of background here. I'm sorry? It looks like Moses. Looks like Moses, yeah, with an M16, something like that. So, Rabbi Ronsky did not grow up religious by any stretch of the imagination. He was raised in a very, very secular family in a very, very secular city. The most secular city in Israel, historically, is the city of Haifa. City of Haifa. Red Haifa was called communist, atheist, very, very secular place. And that's where he was raised. And entire childhood, no religion. Joins the army, no religion at all. He joins uh, the most elite um, naval commando unit, unit called Shayatet Shloshisrei, right? Unit 13, which is a Navy commando unit. They're the ones who famously, there was, uh, most recently, they were famous for uh, that, that Turkish ship, that Mavi Marmara, that was trying to go into Gaza, and they came out of the helicopters, and there was a major battle on that ship. But Shayatet Shloshisrei, he joins. Um, it's one of the, the several top elite units in the IDF. And um, it's very similar to Navy SEAL Team 6. And uh, then after a year and a half, he gets uh, slightly uh, wounded. He has to take a step back. And he, instead, he joins the, uh, the paratroops. And he becomes an officer in the paratroops. And he becomes the uh, commander of a commando unit within the paratroops. And this is, uh, he was born in 1951. So this is in the early in the early 70s. And then, of course, in, um, in the 70s, the most famous uh, war that takes place is the Yom Kippur War. And so he's in the Yom Kippur War with his commando unit fighting in Sinai uh, during the Yom Kippur War. And they were in many, many battles against the Egyptian commandos, his, uh, his, uh, his unit. And he writes about it at length. You have a lot of different stories uh, from that time um, when his own commander um, of the division of the uh, paratroops that he, was, that he was part of, who was a religious soldier, um, uh, the two of them develop a very close relationship, and as a result of that relationship, to make a very a long story short, Rabbi Ronsky is introduced to basic concepts of Judaism. He had started, during that time period, a lot of his friends were killed in action um, during the Yom Kippur War. He had started keeping a diary and writing to God. 
he did not have any concept of what God it was. Um, and through his relationship with his commander, he started to learn more. His commander connected him to the right people. He met Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook, who at the time was Rosh Yeshiva of the Merkaz Rav Yeshiva in Jerusalem. And over time, him and his girlfriend at the time, who was serving in the same unit along with him, together became religious. They became observant. At age 24, he becomes observant. Before age 24, he was not religious at all, which in and of itself is highly unusual for somebody who would become the, eventually the IDF chief rabbi, because starting from zero at age 24 is a very hard thing um, to become get smicha of any kind, especially to deal with the kinds of things that he would have to deal with. And uh, so things develop. That's, uh, that's in the late 70s. Um, in the year 1980, he leaves the, uh, he leaves the army. And he, uh, he's living in Jerusalem, and he begins working with uh, at-risk kids in Jerusalem. He's doing a lot of counseling for kids at risk, etc., and uh, he eventually, he eventually, um, I'm sorry, actually right, bef- right around that time, he, he, I'm sorry, right before that, right before he left the army, the position that he was in, he actually became the commander of the Shomron region. There's a unit that's responsible for the Samaria, which is the Northern West Bank unit. And so he commanded that entire unit, which is going to be very significant um, um, in terms of where he winds up uh, living. And so... Um, he, in, in, uh, so in the early 80s, he's studying at Merkaz Rav. He's studying in, uh, in, in uh, Machon Meir. He's learning a lot more about his Judaism. He's getting smicha, etc. And then he helps found um, one of the, uh, the earliest Jewish settlements, Jewish communities of the uh, Shomron region, Elon Moreh. Elon Moreh is a biblical name for Shechem and um, is a beautiful city and community there. And so he helps found the community of Elon Moreh. He lives there. Um, and... He, uh, he's, he's living there, and he found, helps found the yeshiva. There's a Hezer yeshiva in Elon Moreh as well. He's also teaching in a Teret Kohanim, in uh, Teret Yerushalayim, in, uh, in the old city of Yerushalayim, in the Muslim quarter. And so he's going back and forth. And then a few years later, he helps found a new community in the Shomron called Itamar. Now, Itamar, the son of Aaron Cohen, is traditionally, tradition says, is buried uh, right nearby. There's an Arab village where he's buried. And so they set up a Jewish community called Itamar in the, in the 80s. And he was the rabbi of the community, and he founded the yeshiva in the community. And he was the rabbi and rosh yeshiva um, in Itamar until the uh, until um, the second day of Pesach of this what year. year? What year did the I don't. It's uh, somewhere in the mid mid eighties, I believe. I believe. Oh, really? In the yeshiva? Wow. Okay. Chef, this is very good. So what I'm told, and I'm not, and maybe you can verify it, is that Rabbi Ronsky, in, in his role as Rosh Hashiva, was was not a classic Rosh Hashiva at all. He was very into. He referred to everybody as his colleague, even the students and the other rabbis. He didn't take a uh, strong leadership role, but he was the person who he treated everyone as equal, and he that's how that was his his way of running the yeshiva. Okay. Now, in um, and and one thing to know about Itamar, um, of course, is that that community more than any other community, I think, individual community in Yehudan Jermon, which has seen its share of tragedies, um, has had, for sure per capita, far more terror attacks, I think, than any other community, possibly including the Hebron Jewish community. Um, the, over the years, over the past 20 years, there have been multiple terror attacks, including very horrific ones, in that community. In the high school that he founded, um, in the yeshiva, um, there were families, a Fogel family most recently in 2011, uh, there were others uh, earlier, and um, as the rabbi of the community, in addition to everything else, just to stop a community from crumbling like that, especially in a very vol- volatile place, from people leaving, etc., and instead it's growing, that's just uh, also a testament to his personality. So in 2006, right after the disengagement from Gaza, he gets a call, right, the, the uh, chief of staff of the IDF, Gadi Azenkad at the time, um, he uh, calls him and says, people are telling me that you're the right guy to restore the IDF rabbinate to where it needs to be. You're the man who can build off of what we just experienced with the disengagement from Gaza, and you can actually, um, uh, to, you can actually help the IDF rabbinate achieve its goals. So he went in to the, uh, to the chief of staff, and he uh, spoke to the chief of staff about what, he had, what his vision was for the IDF rabbinate, and he got permission to do the following, which he did. Uh, immediately upon entering his role, he informed all of the IDF rabbis that their role was no longer a jobnik role, meaning their role was no longer 
um, the same thing as the educational core, which means that your job is to go around and give classes or to deal, be more of an armchair kind of soldier. He said to the, all the IDF, all IDF rabbis, he said, you are going to officer training school and you are going to serve in the units that you're assigned. You're going to serve with these units and go into battle with the soldiers whenever they go into battle whether it's on Shabbos, whether it's during the week, whatever it is. And you're going to be sleeping in the tents with them, and you're going to be training with them, etc., etc. You're going to be one of them. And so that right there, you know, many of the old guard of the IDF rabbis left, and he hired new people. And he hired people, he required them to go, he required them to go through, these, uh, through these special training. And, um, and he required them to go to these, they have special days when they engage in sports activities and athletic stuff, and he required all the rabbis to participate in those things. And, um, and when there were missions, he required the rabbis to go out on the missions. And he himself did that, uh, even though he wasn't young. He himself um, was famous for it. You know, they would, soldiers would often wake up and find that Rabbi Ronsky, who was a brigadier general, which is the, the, the rank of a, uh, the IDF chief rabbi, um, was sleeping in the tent next to them, which, which, and when you have a hierarchy of uh, of rank, that's a that's a very big deal, and so that's what he did, and they started giving classes, and he focused heavily on the piece that was not perhaps not as well cultivated, and that was morale and values, and he had IDF uh, rabbis sitting on all the bases, going with them on missions, and talking to the soldiers about why it is important to be doing what they're doing and how they were carrying on a tradition of Jewish warriors and why they were doing a mitzvah, protecting Jews, etc. And the morale of soldiers, it was reported, was going through the roof. In mission after mission, the uh, commanders were reporting back to the chief of staff that the new role of the IDF rabbinate was changing things dramatically, which led to a major clash between Rabbi Ronsky and the education corps of the IDF. The IDF has its own education corps, whose job it is, is to educate, and they're not coming from a religious perspective. And the education corps clashed with Rabbi Ronsky. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth. Haaretz, um, a newspaper, wrote many articles against him, saying that he was essentially creating a Kirov machine, an outreach machine, in the, in the army, which he was, clearly. But the, army, but the actual commanders on the ground were very happy with it. But there were a lot of people that were scared that as it was, there were so many religious soldiers serving in senior officer roles in the IDF, uh, officer training school, they say, has been consistently over 50% religious uh, for a long time now. Um, and so they were very, very nervous. They were saying he was destroying the status quo, um, etc. So, so, um, so there was a lot of that. There was a lot of drama. And, but he persisted, and he, did, and he did what he had to do. So um, in, in, uh, um, around the time, actually, right not too long after he joined the, uh, the IDF is when the Second Lebanon War broke out. And so in his diary, which we don't have too much time to talk about, but in his diary, he, he writes extensively about um, all the things that he dealt with. So as I mentioned to you earlier, the, the war broke out with the kidnapping of these soldiers on the, on the border with Lebanon. And so dealing with the families in terms of Aguna, Aguna matters. Um, as the, as the, he was waiting there as, as the units were coming back in, uh, very often with the soldiers who they had to, they had to evacuate under fire from the battlefields, on uh, the Hezbollah battlefields. He writes how um, Roe Klein, who was perhaps the most famous uh, soldier of the Second Lebanon War, who was a, a company commander in Golani, who was also a, a rabbi, a teacher in the Eli um, uh, Mechina, who, um, who famously jumped on a grenade to save all the soldiers and was killed. And, um, and Roe Klein, uh, they, he, he in fact reports this, that Roe Klein there's like an there's an encrypted uh, there's an encrypted communication device that the commander has, and so he was just um, and my understanding is that there's some kind of there's some aspect of it that only the commander knows how to operate or there's a code of some kind and like with his dying breath he passed that on to his second in command so that he can continue he can continue and so Rabbi Ronsky was there as Roe Klein's body is coming back over the border and he's the one who has to go and and this is what he took it upon himself he didn't have to he took it upon himself. To, to help identify that it was him. You, have, you can imagine, uh, he actually writes that in, in Ali, this community of Ali, there were a bunch of the, um, a bunch of the, the, uh, the higher ranking officers that were fighting in, in Lebanon. Their wives were gathered together in Ali. They had heard that, that there was a terrible tragedy, that there was an ambush by Hezbollah, and they were all there together. And he's sitting there with the families, 
these wives on the phone, and they're waiting for word on their on their husbands. And so he goes into these this tent where Roe Klein is, and he he's you know he has to open his he has to open his uh, his shirt pocket and take out the letters that he had perhaps written to his to his children or the the pictures that he had brought with him into battle. And um, and in in the case of Roe Klein, he reports that he his face was totally intact and he he looked very tranquil, but that's th- those are the the easy relatively easy things that he had to deal with obviously the the emotional trauma is massive but then you have situations of tanks which are hit direct hit by missiles for example which happened there uh, in the second lebanon war several times tragically and and they bring these tanks back over the border these charred tanks knowing that there are several bodies in the tank and somebody has to open up that tank and get in there and and identify these these soldiers and treat them in a way that's uh, in compliance with halacha. Um, there's one story that he tells about a tank that came back that he went into, and he counted, and and he went into, and the army had already reported to the families that the soldiers were killed, and he, and and the families were planning funerals. He goes into the tank and realizes that there's one person, one of the soldiers that was supposed to be in the tank, was not in the tank. And his family, this, this soldier's family, religious family, was planning the funeral. They're waiting for the body to be brought. You know, especially in Israel, they try to bury it even quicker than in the United States, uh, in Jerusalem for sure. And so he realizes, he's the one who realizes that one of the bodies was never in the tank to begin with. Is he alive? Is he dead? You have these families that are waiting. They're planning the funerals. And so what happened in that particular case is that, um, is that one of the soldiers was actually outside, of, on top of the tank when the missile hit and his body flew dozens and dozens of meters and he was left in hostile territory which in and of itself is a major strategic problem because if Hezbollah ever gets their hands on this body they'll use it as a bargaining chip for for the release of their terrorists and so Rabbi Ronsky realizes that there's because he's dealing with the families and dealing with the burial that there's somebody stuck back there and he forces an, a new invasion of this territory so that the the uh, I think it was the paratroops can go and, and, and the event, they, they went through it with a fine-tooth comb, and they found this body in some bushes somewhere, um, and they were able to retrieve it. So that kind of thing. These are the kinds of things that the... Ide- he was dead, yeah. These are the kinds of things... Yes, thank you. Yeah, he was the kinds of things that the IDF rabbinate are dealing with. Um, and that, those are... Uh, the, that's all obviously assuming that you can identify the body. And there are many situations where they weren't able to identify the body, and so within the IDF rabbinate, you have um, an entire division which is responsible to, for gathering fingerprints and DNA samples and all these other things so that in the uh, tragic event uh, where they need to, they can use that as part of the evidence to support uh, identifying a body halakhically a particular way. So that was, uh, that's the Second Lebanon War. Um, you see, uh, yes. They, there's that's the job of the unit um, that's responsible for that is to do whatever they can. What, was the what happens when uh, in in a case of a violent death? So there are parts of bodies in various places. So in terror attacks, that unfortunately happens very frequently. And so Zaka, which is a volunteer organization in Israel, they that they 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 scrape the floors and and. Exactly. That's uh, exactly. So in in a battlefield, they do the best they can. But you're right. Every piece of tissue and whatever it is should be buried with um, with the body. No, they gather it and they bring it to a proper burial. They bring it to proper burial. Um, and then, so starting during this this period when there were many soldiers killed, uh, Rabbi Ronsky took it upon himself even more aggressively than other previous chief rabbis to be there for the families. And this is something he did. One evening every week for his entire career, he would make sure to go to a family, even after the burial and even after the shiva, for years and years and years, um, until now, he just passed away. He was known, he developed a relationship with tens and hundreds of families, religious, secular, many secular families, came to view him as their rabbi. And he was there when their son, husband, was killed in action. And so he was the person that they wanted to be there when they remarried or their child... Uh, got married or whatever else. So he developed very close relationships with, with uh, many, many families. Uh, in, um, and in 2008, there was Operation Cast Lead, which was uh, the conflict in Gaza. And so there, Rabbi Ronsky actually famously led, and led a unit as the commander into Gaza himself 
um, spent nights holed up in, in burnt out houses, safe houses, whatever it is, with units uh, in, his, in his 50s. Uh, in 60, actually, he was in the 60s at the time. Um, and he made all of the IDF rabbis, he strongly encouraged them to go into battle with their units, which was unprecedented, um, but certainly at the very least to be there on the front lines at the border fence to talk to the soldiers. And that's when we saw pictures of the IDF giving out tons of uh, pairs of tzitzis to the to thousands of soldiers who weren't religious who were asking for them and they had fundraising drives to gather the, to get to get them because everyone was asking for them and the IDF rabbinate was there and they were giving speeches and they were quoting the uh, the verses from Sefer Devarim um, which is the uh, talk that the Kohen gives to the to Jewish soldiers that are going out into battle. In fact, I remember during Castled there was a religious commander of the Givati Brigade. His name was Ofer Winter who was very controversial, he issued a letter to his soldiers also quoting verbatim from that, from that passage in Devarim. And also he got a lot of flack for being so religious about the, the, the way he approaches, he approaches the war. So a lot, of that kind of thing, a lot of that kind of thing was happening. So he went in with them. Um, and then again over there, there as well, he, in fact, he spent one Shabbos holed up with a particular unit, which two days later, everybody he was with that Shabbos was killed in an ambush. Every uh, senior senior uh, commanders, and he writes about them, and he he knew each of them. He spent their last Shabbos on on Earth uh, with them. So he's somebody who had no trouble. Um, he brought his own very rich service in the IDF outside of the IDF rabbinate into into the into the rabbinate. And so he completely changed the way it was perceived, both by soldiers um, and the way they operated. Um, after at a certain point after that, he. Um, he, he retires from the army. I believe it was 2010, 2011. Um, some other dimensions um, of Rabbi Ronsky and his wife is that in addition to their own six children, over the years they actually adopted several other children. Uh, one of the children that they adopted, actually during a visit of his to a hospital to visit an injured soldier, he saw a child um, and the hospital staff said that this is a child that was left there by their parents and the parents didn't want to raise the child. And on the spot, he committed to raising this child. Type of person, the type of person he was. So they adopted children. He dealt with uh, kids who were who were at risk as well. Um, and uh, so after he retired, right after he retired from the army, is actually when the the Fogel family uh, um, uh, terror attack occurred in Itamar. And so he was there for his community to help them pick up the pieces after that. And uh, Itamar today is just bigger and bigger and bigger, despite all of the uh, terrible things that they had to they had to deal with. And so here's where an entire new dimension of Rabbi Ronsky's life is introduced. This is very interesting. In 2011, he got together with two, old, two friends of his, two friends, two people that he viewed as people who share his basic worldview. At the time, they were not very well known. Today, they are very, very well known. Him and two other people created a new political movement, and they were deciding whether to create their own political party. And those two other people, one of them was a man named Naftali Bennett, who's today the Education Minister of Israel. The other was Ayelet Shaked, who is today the Justice Minister of Israel. And so him, Ayelet Shaked, and Naftali Bennett got together and said, we're creating a new political movement called Hayisraelim. And the basis of our political movement, by and large, is that we are mostly, we are very religiously oriented. Not all of our members may be religious. Ayala Chaked herself is not religious. Um, but we're very traditional. And we value Judaism, and we value a strong Israel. And it's time for religious and secular Jews to come together around shared common values, national security, faith. Most Israelis are very traditional. And we're going to start a new political movement. So the three of them started this movement called Hayisraelim. At the time, the National Religious Party was going through an identity crisis. Eventually, they become the Bayit HaYehudi, the Jewish Home Party, which exists in the Knesset today. And Rabbi Ronsky says, I'm not, I don't personally want to be in politics, but he encouraged Naftali Bennett and Ayala Chaked to be part of what became basically a takeover of the Bayit HaYehudi Party. So um, that's where uh, his political philosophy entered the public arena. So for the first several years, of, of, of his uh, takeover of Bayad He did not um, participate politically, even though he was very involved in running things. He eventually ran for the Knesset in 2014. He didn't make it into a realistic spot, but he, was, he is viewed by Ayala Chaked and Naftali Bennett, who are the, uh, you know, arguably uh, you know, two of the most powerful people um, in the Israeli government, as their rabbi, as their spiritual guide, which is uh, also a very, very interesting, very interesting thing. So... Um, so, so that's, that's in terms of a uh, political involvement. Um, in 2014, 
he decided to do something else on top of all his many accomplishments, and he said that he had served alongside all these thousands of soldiers through thick and through thin, and as we know, many, many Israeli soldiers, upon their release from the IDF, they go to India. India. And so him and his wife decided they're going to pick up and go to India. And so they did. They showed up in India, they rented a house, they were not part of any organization, and they just opened up their home to Israeli backpackers who were finding themselves after their army service. And so it turns out they only wound up being there for six months, uh, but he kept a diary of it, which he publicized, dealing with all these uh, uh, um, former these, uh, soldiers who had, who had left and helping find themselves. And then they're in India, um, and he writes extensively about what they were dealing with in terms of drugs and other things, and they bump into none other than the former chief rabbi of the IDF, and that was a very powerful thing for them because even though there were many Chabad houses and other things, but to have somebody like him, who himself was a decorated veteran and had served in the IDF uh, in the most senior positions and was a brigadier general, he was able to do things with a lot of these uh, young people that other people couldn't. And they hosted Chavez meals and other things. And, and while I remember all of the, while all of this is going on, he's still responsible for his own yeshiva in Itamar. And uh, so he was dealing with that, and he, he wrote letters to his yeshiva while he was in India telling the boys who were studying there how important it is, uh, what, they're, how, what, what they're doing was so important, etc. Um, one area that he was, uh, eventually he came back to, uh, to Israel. Another area that he was very effective in, um, and I'll, we'll start winding down, another area that he was very effective in is that in the, er- in the region of Itamar, which is uh, northern Samaria, is also referred to as Gavahar, the mountaintops. Okay? That region, if you've ever been there, it's massive, very empty, um, and there are a lot of mountaintops. And so there's a, uh, a phenomenon, um, a uh, social phenomenon, uh, referred to as the hilltop youth. Hilltop youth. Who are hilltop youth? So all kinds of different people, but many of them, certainly the stereotypes of them, are you have young people who may or may not be using drugs, um, are very inspired uh, uh, by a theology of settling the land of Israel, and, very, and they, they're teens very often, sometimes high school dropouts, and they show up on mountaintops and just stay there. Um, sometimes building shacks, the army comes and knocks them down, they rebuild them. Some, are, some hilltops are bigger than others, some are established communities, some are not. But many of them um, engage in behavior which can be very problematic from the perspective of the IDF and the border police. And there have been many cases of hilltop youth who are puncturing IDF uh, you know, Jeep wheels and other things because they view because the IDF is coming to uh, remove them from these hilltops. And so for, for, sev- for many years after the disengagement from Gaza, the hilltop youth as a movement would not join the IDF. And so Rabbi Ronsky, um, as a resident of Itamar, which is almost the headquarters, or at least it's, it's very close to a lot of these hilltops, even though he was viewed as an establishment figure, he was able to go to these hilltops and he was able to find a common ground between the youth of the hilltops who are very highly motivated and are people who have risked their lives for the safety of, of Israel and, and talk to them about joining the IDF. And as a result, many, many did join the IDF um, as a result of the bridges that he built between, uh, between them and the army. Um, so he was somebody who very, very often quoted Pirkei Avos. He was very fond of Pirkei Avos. He talked a lot about um, um, the, uh, about the idea of Derech Eretz Kadmala Torah, you have to be a human being, you have to relate to people. He was an iconoclast. You have to remember, he's living in Itamar, which is uh, a major center of, uh, one would say, um, hard uh, right settlement. Um, and, and he decided, listen to what he did, it's unbelievable. He decided that he wanted, on top of everything else, he wanted, decided he wanted to donate his kidney. But more than donate his kidney, on the list of people who needed a kidney donation was an Arab from an adjacent village realized that this is the same adjacent village that all of the mur- many murderers who had killed people in his own town came from. And so he had people do actually background checks on this particular uh, Arab um, and found out that he, his family has no, had no background of engaging in hostile behavior. And he decided to donate his kidney to a Palestinian Arab from the next village. Unusual thing. And so he goes into the doctor for, for a checkup to get checked out to see whether uh, it'll work out. And the doctor actually, as a result of that checkup, noticed a growth in his stomach. And this is, he's 64, 65 years old, not an old person. And, um, and, and they realized it was cancerous and they needed to treat it. And so for the past couple of years, 
he was actually undergoing cancer treatment, and um, he passed away on again on the second day of Pesach of this year, just now, a couple weeks ago, um, at the age at age 66 as a result of that illness. That's uh, that's uh, that's a story of how they found out that he was sick. Now, um, his final words, uh, his final testament to his students, he said, um, he said that he said the most important thing in my mind is to smile and to say hello he says you don't have to donate a kidney you don't have to uh he says you could do something more simple he says if you go into an elevator and you see somebody else smile at them say hello to them um jewish or non-jewish say good morning he says israeli society would be completely transformed if that was more a part of our lives and um, he says, when people are pleasant, people listen to them. And so if you have something to say, be pleasant and be nice, people listen to you. That was basically, with, even though he had obviously a lot more to share about his life and his own legacy, that's the, that's the legacy that he left behind. Um, and um, Ayala Chaked, who was a, uh, a disciple of his, the justice minister of Israel, um, in an article that she wrote when he passed away, so she quoted, she quoted a... Um, he quoted a, uh, a, a quote from uh, uh, Yosef Trumpeldor, who was a famous pre-1948, pre much earlier, uh, warrior who fought, fought uh, for Jewish rights in Israel. And uh, Trumpeldor famously said, he said, he said, if you need a wheel, he said, if you need a wheel, here I am. If you need a nail, a screw, a block, uh, you can take me. If you need a man, if you need somebody to uh, plow the soil, he says, I'm ready. If you need a soldier, I'm ready. A policeman, a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a water carrier, here I am. I have no form. I have no psychology. I have no personal feelings. I don't have a name. I'm just a servant of the land of Israel. And so she said that's who Rabbi Ronsky was. He was a rabbi. He was a soldier. He was a social worker. He was a very varied, very varied personality. And Rabbi Ronsky himself, um, in, in a recent article, which I think is a very good way to end, Rabbi Ronsky wrote an article where he talked about how he, all around him people are talking about how bad things are and the Jewish people are in crisis and uh, the political system is, is uh, messed up, etc. And he said that, that he says that to him, the most heartening thing that he can, that the most heartening thing that he sees in modern Israeli society, he says he has a friend who's in the uh, business of, of printing um, Sfarim, Jewish books, Hebrew books. And he says that every month in Israel, every single month in Israel, 250 Jewish books, new Jewish books are printed every single month, 250 new Jewish books. And he says, to me, he says, everything else is detail. He says, you could choose to focus on all the little things. He says, but when you have a people, and this goes far beyond just religious Jews, you have Jews who are thirsty for Jewish tradition, he says, that's the most important thing, and that's going to, uh, to, to outlast all these uh, temporary troubles that we have. So that's the story. So uh, as I brought up at the beginning, speaking on Yom Zikaron about somebody who wasn't killed in action um, or wasn't a victim of terror, um, is a, a bit surprising, but uh, the story of Rabbi Ronsky is certainly linked to the many wars of Israel. It's linked to many victims of terror. Uh, he's somebody who dedicated his lives, his life, to uh, to the state of Israel, to the people of Israel, and especially to uh, to the IDF. And I hope that was interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Question. <laughs> Go ahead, Ellie. Yes. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, my understanding is that they're not formally intertwined. I don't think, for example, that the IDF chief rabbi is on like the Beit Din Agadol of the Ravanut. I don't think so. Um, so I think I think the IDF Ravanut operates somewhat in, uh, independently in the area of its purview. Like I mean, Rabbi Ronsky talks a lot about. He writes a lot about how how the he views army bases like. The rabbi of a base is like the rabbi of a community. The same way a rabbi of a community, of a neighborhood, services the needs of that community, the rabbi of a base should do the same. So I don't believe there's any formal connection. I, in, in terms of all these qu questions of agunas and everything else, I'm sure they consult. Um, they consult. But I think the groundwork was already laid for most so, of this stuff. So meaning is in, in his roles, uh, or any of the ideas yeah. of rabbis, they, they weren't subservient to the opinions of the chief rabbinate at, at the time, in the sense that they could 
All right, that's a good question. That's a good question. I don't know if I've never heard of such a such a clash, but I can imagine something would have happened, especially let's say Rev Gorin. You know, I mean, Rev Gorin was very controversial for his views on the on going onto the Temple Mount, right? So I can imagine right there. I mean, the members of the IDF, um, you know, uh, chief of staff council were very critical of him, and I'm sure the chief rabbis were also critical um, of him. So, yeah, I, I don't think they have to comply. That's yeah, a good the reason question. why I, I asked specifically was because the general interesting thing is that we know the general chief rabbi in Israel over the last 30 years become a lot more Haredi. Um, okay. And as opposed to the the chief rabbinate of the army, right? Because not many Haredi are in the army, so there's kind of been like this split. And I wonder if there's like major differences of views that come from that. Or That's not. a good question. So Rabbi Ronsky himself, the reason he was such a unique pick is that he was viewed as being a little bit right wing on things. But he wasn't like he was like you can't really pin the guy down. So like one of the mo- like one of the modern issues the IDF deals with right now, where he clashed with the education, um, the education department of the IDF, um, involved um, women singing at IDF uh, events. Right. So you have religious officers that were walking out of they're just walking out of, of ceremonies because there were women singing as uh, in protest, even if they didn't have to. There are many there are many. Um, 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 Rosh Hashivas and rabbis in the settler community, in the religious Zionist community, who are of the opinion that the laws of modesty are stricter in the army than out of the army, based on the verses that refer to um, how that the army encampment has to be a holier place than the rest. And so even though it might be okay to behave a certain way outside of the army in civilian life, but when you're in the army, you've got to be stricter. Right, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi um, Shmuel Eliyahu, Sephardic chief rabbi of Tzfat, he tells Sephardic soldiers he his personal opinion and the and and uh, the his his his, his position, um, not just his position, but the position that is that is that um, is that um, you should not wear tzitzis out of your clothing, right? For example, but he says he tells all IDF soldiers to wear tzitzis out of their clothing, at an added layer, even though in civilian life you shouldn't. And I believe he also the laws of yichud. Um, in terms of going in a in a vehicle with a, a female IDF soldier, they're much stricter about it. So, yeah. So I don't know of any of, of how that works, but it's a good what question. I think he supported he supported um, the soldiers pressuring the army to comply to be sensitive to their needs. But and not supported soldiers leaving. I I think he I think I don't know I don't know I think he wanted to find a solution to it. He also writes about female soldiers. That's another thing, right? So the official position of most rabbis in Israel is that females should not be joining the IDF, right? On the other hand, you have religious soldiers in the IDF. So you have to find a way to service them. So that's, uh, you know, so that's what he would, say. he would say. I'm personally opposed to it. I don't think religious girls should be in the army. But we have to, we have to find solutions to, to make it uh, the best possible experience for them. So, yeah. That's the story. Any other questions? Okay. Thank you all. Appreciate it.